0: Hi and welcome back to the Mariner with me, Chris Tamal Major. Okay, and to continue on from the last episode, we were talking about the Velux Five Oceans Race, and I had journeyed from France down to. The Canary Islands had a lot of issues with trying to get to know how the Open 60 worked, uh, what I was meant to be doing as a solo sailor, which, uh, you know, that's all good. Good to go and learn those things. Good to get out onto the water and stretch your skills. Perhaps not best to be doing it when you're actually engaged in uh, around-the-world yacht race that's being watched by millions of people online. But there you go. That's what was happening. So by this point, we're off down the Atlantic. We've cleared the Canaries, and I was definitely starting to get, grips, get to grips with... Um, the details of how the boat sailed and some of the performance, but my speed was still way, way behind the other people that were competing in the race. Many of which, um, as we already discussed, had already done solo around the world, yacht races had had their open sixties for a decent amount of time. And had had access to, um, a great amount of, uh, input, um, from experts in the field, whether that be preparateurs, the people that prepare the boats for the, you know, for the races, um, on technical aspects, or from other sailors, or just time in the in the profession. Um, meanwhile, I am trying to step up from being a sail training instructor and having just done the Clipper Race to suddenly being on an Open sixty. So I guess the first question that we should be discussing in this episode is, you know, what's the difference between an open 60 and a normal sailboat. Why Why is it so complicated to to, to get on board and, and get going? Well, we could go through a couple of the parameters which kind of define the boat and maybe we'll start to get an idea of how that impacts on the performance and uh, why <laughs> I was understandably nervous about what I was doing. So open 60s are boats that are designed inside of a, an open box rule essentially. So. You can have any design that you want as long as it comes within a couple of very basic parameters, which dictate key elements of the boat's structure and shape. So, um, the boats need to be no deeper than 4.5 meters. They need to have masts that I think the latest edition of, of the rule is 27 meters or 27.5 meters high. Um, the boats can be no longer than. Um, meters 60 feet on the waterline, and they can't have any more than two meters of overhangs from bowsprit or from the uh, boom Um, they can only have five appendages so that means underwater uh, some of these boats it starts to look like a swiss army knife at the best of times anyway but uh, they have been limited so that you can only have uh, two dagger boards and your keel and two rudders or whatever combination you want but no more than five appendages um there was a boat wild oats was it wild oats 21 i feel like they called it the swiss army knife because it had um centerboard a canter keel, centerboard twin foil canting keel arrangement which means a little rudder ahead and behind of the keel which does some of the steering it had twin rudders and then it had um the earlier uh, incorporation of the DSS, the Dynamic Stability System, which is a horizontal dagger board. We'll be talking much more about that in the in the future. A brilliant system, I've got lots of time to discuss that one. Um, but it uh, it was in there as well, so you've got two dagger boards, you've got your keel, you've got two canards forward and after the keel, and then you've got two dagger boards. So that's what, one, two, <laughs> Three, four, five, six, seven, and then the DSS could be on either side. So that's seven, nine things sticking out the bottom, or eight if you look at the DSS as being one unit. But um, the Open 60s, five maximum things underwater. And then at the time that I was doing the uh, race on the Open 60, they had a rule which meant that you couldn't have more than 10 degrees of inclination on the deck when the ballast and ballast moving systems were in their maximum. Um, imbalance, so if you've got uh, tanks on the boat, ballast tanks, and you've got them on port side, starboard side, you'd have to fill all of the tanks which are on one side of the centre line, and then you'd have to cant your keel entirely to that side as well, and at that time the rule was that the deck couldn't move more than 10 degrees, and that was to limit um, ballast shifting operations which would push the boat into a, a state of instability, um, the thing is, like the boats will sail really, really well with the keel way massively canted and huge amounts of ballast, as long as nothing goes wrong. If anything goes wrong, you've instantly got a problem because then oh, you can hear those pops. It's the the fireplace behind me that's uh, <laughs> sorry, I'm not under attack. Um, if you've got the keel and the ballast all on one side and you're you're scooting along and everything's okay, it's fine. The problem is if you crash tack, crash jibe, that might happen because the autopilot goes offline or some. Unexpected circumstance, then the issue is that suddenly the boat is massively unstable. And with the wind blowing uh, normally, then against a backed main, particularly if you crash tacked or crash jibed, you've got this enormous force on the mainsail. The mainsail can't even get to a normal mainsail shape because it's got the backstay underneath it. And then the boat starts to heel way, way, way over. So The box rule at this time that we're talking about, 2010, 2011 for the Open 60s, no more than 10 degree heel, no more than two meters overhangs, no more than 18.6 meters on the waterline, no more than 4.5 meters deep, and no more than 27.5 meters high unless you are grandfathering in taller uh, constructions which i kind of was so the situation i was in is uh there, there are other things as well you know which obviously to do with the strength of the scantlings and buoyancy and all sorts of things but that gives you an idea of what an open box rule is a one design rule would be that every single boat is exactly the same and that's what the new volvo 65s would be they're all built to a rule where everything is exactly the same and that's what the clipper race is they're one design boats but the Open 60 would be more like uh, mini transats would be in an open uh, box rule. I think international 14s would be in an open box rule, but then like a Beneteau 40.7, that's one design. So uh, weight, the weight is not uh, limited or maximum or minimum. The K boat, which was first called the Kingdom of Bahrain and went around the world in 2008 with, um, oh my goodness, my brain has gone to mush with... uh, Thompson not Alex Thompson Brian Thompson Brian Thompson on board that boat weighed like 13 and a half tons or something it had an incredible weight about it incredible power about it but um ended up not being very very competitive because it just took so much effort and so much weight to run that boat that even though it had all this extra power you couldn't really use it as a solo sailor but it was up in the 13,000 kilo range which is actually what you know Volvo Volvo 60, Volvo 70, Volvo 65, they're all in that range and they have 12 crew on board. Um, Then you go down to the new VPLP uh, designs in open 60s and they're down in the seven ton, seven and a half ton range, 7,000 kilos. So a big, uh, you know, you can have different designs. You look at things like Bruce Schwab's boat, um, Ocean Planet, which was uh, uh, a West Coast design that was racing in the when did he last go around was it the 90s i think a very narrow very thin boat with an unstayed rotating rig still an open 60. Um, you've had open 60s which are catchers and yawls you've have open 60s which are like boxes they're so flat they've got such incredible primary stability that they literally are like a raft and then you've got boats which have got um, much more sea kindly design um, which I would put my, my Fino boats into. The, both of the boats I've sailed, both the one I have now and the one I went around the world with, have exactly the same hull. It's exactly the same design. There's differences from the, the, the way they're constructed inside. Obviously, the one I have now is fixed keel. The one I had before was canton keel. But it's the same hull. And I would say that for an Open 60, it's quite a sea kindly design. It has a bit of um, radius to the chines. It does still sail up on a chine. It still wants to be up at... 27 degrees when you're going upwind, when you're powered up to get that um, flat entry point that runs right underneath the daggerboard, daggerboard's vertical, uh, right underneath the stern rudder's vertical. Um, but it's it's got some radius to that chine. It's got a a, a, a nice uh, radius to the to the bow, which means when you come off a wave, it still sounds like a roll of thunder. But it's um you know it's not quite as earth shattering as you can get with some of the very new boats. So the Open Sixties. I would say are your go-to for the most competent offshore boats, uh, racing boats that probably there's ever been as a class. Uh, I don't know if I can qualify that exactly. The Volvo 60s, the Whitbread 60s, incredibly competent boats. The Imoka 60s carried on from that. Then the Volvo went to Volvo 70s, and they were never quite as strong. They were so fast, but they're never quite as strong as the 60s. They've now come back to the 65s, which are incredible boats. But I think the IMOCAs have always been consistently there. Um, The IMOCA boats have suffered a lot from the fact that they're on the very edge of what's possible in design. And that's meant, you know, loss of masts. And we've had some keels lost. And, um, you know, there's been some fatalities and some boats rolled over and sailors not uh, surviving it. But on the whole, uh, the boats now are rigged that they are self-righting. So if you've got a canting keel, the keel can be slowly... Uh, you're up imagine you're upside down the boat's flipped over through goodness knows what circumstance the keel was already on one side the boat will roll itself back over because there's so much weight hanging on one side as it's upside down with the keel canted maybe you know twenty five thirty degrees to one side that the boat will just roll itself back around in time um if the keel somehow was vertical at the time that you did it um you can inside you have a manual release which then goes open circuit on the hydraulics and that means that whichever side is more favored by the wind or the angle of the hull or what have you, the keel will start to move towards that side. And as a note, I was in the Volvo 65 um, sailing Poland's boat, which used to be Mapfre, I was inside that boat for the Caribbean 600 uh, recently when we charted it, and uh, I saw that they had a note uh, right on the galley, like front and center, and it says, in the event of having to drop the keel to one side to to flip the boat over when it's uh, capsized, do so very, very slowly and carefully and only put as much keel on as is absolutely necessary to flip the boat back over. I guess the thing being, if you watch rollover tests of boats doing um, when these boats are new, the IMOCA 60s, they have to do a 180 degree rollover test to prove that they have this capability to flip themselves over. And you watch if the if the skippers are a bit too quick to release that keel, release the hydraulics. Those things whip over so fast. I remember talking to Derek Hatfield who'd done a 180 degree rollover test with the open 60 that he built in Coburg in, in Canada in um, 2006, 2007. And he said, when it, when it goes, it really goes. So um, these boats have got uh, these incredible offshore characteristics. Uh, the boat that I've got now has got seven watertight compartments, seven watertight compartments. That's even I keep looking at the design going, really? And that's because this boat, which we'll talk about more in the future, is very much designed for upwind work. So by the time you get to the mast, you've already gone through four watertight compu- compartments and there's still another three to go behind the mast. So uh, big salvage pumps, both mechanical, electric. and Well, not everybody's got mechanical, but like on my boat, I can connect the ballast pump up so I can pump water from inside the boat if I need to. So mechanical pumps, electronic pumps and then manual pumps. Um, the master all rigged on deck which means in the event of the boat rolling over that the um the, the mast will tear clear of the boat um and at least it won't rip a big hole in the deck um you know you've still got to get moving as fast as you can and get that thing disconnected from the boat but at that moment when it happens the mast will disconnect itself from its boat um i think I think this is true to say all open 60s. I don't want to cast that net too wide because I haven't got any qualification, but certainly every open 60 I've ever seen, the boom actually connects to the deck just after the mast. So the gooseneck is on the deck and that means that should the mast, um, you know, you roll over, you snap the mast or the mast just snaps or whatever, you can get rid of the mast um, and then the boom itself can be stood upright in the gooseneck and then re-raged. And then you've got like the makings of a ready to go mast. You've got a, the, the boom on these things will be like 30 feet long. And when you stand that upright, wait, you've got a 30 foot mast. Um, what else? So, and then construction. So I have come across a couple of Open 60s, which are built of other materials, e-glass and composite. Um, there's a Burn and a Velt uh, built a beautiful Open 60, which was built for um Thierry Dubois and then uh owned by uh, Richard Wilson who had it as Great America 3 and then Derek Hadfield had it as Active House and that was built with a composite um and it wasn't carbon fiber it was uh, I believe it was e-glass and then it had all these bulkheads that were I think it had 11 bulkheads from front to back and then it had four um full height internal stringers so the thing was like a like kind of like a like an egg box or something it was just unbelievably strong because of that had a beautiful design um but on the whole they're carbon fiber and um uh that would be a mix of monolithic carbon fiber that's solid carbon fiber in the keel and in the in the more important stressed uh, stressed areas and structural areas of the boat and then cord carbon carbon fiber in the rest of the area so in my boat that's an outer skin of carbon fiber that's probably one or two mils thick you know not not even probably like an eighth of an inch. It's unbelievably thin. And then it's got this Nomex core on the inside of it, which is this honeycomb fire retardant uh, material. I know it's fire retardant because you can get Nomex and other things. It's a honeycomb core that they put in the, in between the other sheath of carbon fiber, which is on the inside of the hull. Um, And that's all you're looking at. There's like an eighth of an inch of carbon fiber inside and out, and then you've got the Nomex core but the way it's designed of course the ocean doesn't tend to like prod and poke at your boat like a rock or a deck cleat or something like that on the on the dock um it tends to slam against it and obviously this this medium works very very well this cord carbon fiber it's very light it's very strong and when it's designed correctly it won't delaminate it won't fall apart and it can withstand the rigors of wherever you want to take it um Woe betide, as has happened to me before, if you are in a dock and a fender bursts in a a storm or a squall and the boat gets pushed up against the dock because docks and rocks do tend to poke at your boat and suddenly you've got um, the outside uh, covering of the boat abraded and you've got a little hole right through the side of your carbon fiber boat. But... um, carbon fiber is of course the material of choice and then when you get down to like the keel area underneath the mast the stringers you're dealing with very very heavy concentrations of carbon fiber which are able to bear huge load and these things are highly designed and highly engineered so that they can do what they need to do um some of the areas we've had in the past with open 60s with breaking keels and breaking masts you know there was definitely we all know that like nineteen seventies fiberglass boats were massively overbuilt. Well there was a period when carbon fiber boats are massively overbuilt and then there was a kick back against that and they went super, super lightly built, and then we've the the circles kinda of turned again and now obviously those in the know with exactly how these materials work have brought us to a point where um the materials in the they don't have carbon fiber keels anymore. The, um, the, uh, the Open 60, which is run by the International Monohull Open Class Association, otherwise known as IMOCA. IMOCA have said it's only steel keels on these boats now. Um, and they have a standard uh, couple of rigs that they put in as well, just to avoid the fact that, you know, the sport started to become kind of uh, damaged maybe by these super edgy designs going out and breaking and then people going, you know, what's going on? These are meant to be the best boats in the world and they can't even cross the Atlantic without breaking. So um, the boats would have uh, autopilot systems, uh, which would be comprehensive, shall we say. So whilst you might have an autopilot on a cruising boat, which, you know, you can press the button, engage it and off you go and it's going to sail by apparent wind or true wind or compass course like we spoke about last time. These ones you're going to have Two entire systems, which have two completely separate Rams operating the the rudders uh, in the lazarette, and then two consip- completely separate set of brains for the operation. And then um, on on my first boat, two completely separate sets of, uh, of of instruments. Actually, there was like a big changeover switch, and you could ka-chunk, ka-chunk, like move it across to the other system. And then after twenty seconds of warming up, the other system would be online and ready to to use. So. Uh, one of the things that uh, we talked to a little bit last time about uh, waking up and, and how easy that is once you realize that uh, uh, would I say that uh, thinking you're going to die is <laughs> you know a great alarm clock, but the thing that also happens is that um, the other smaller sound which wakes you up very quickly is the beep 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 when you're. Uh, NMEA feed or your SeaTalk feed or whatever it is in the system that you're using that communication between the autopilot brains and the rest of the system when that's lost and you get that warning I tell you that gets you out of bed fast as well because that means nobody driving (laughs) nobody's driving this show and uh, you better be thinking about what you're going to do next like get on deck fast so um, for me that would involve as I went through the door chunk chunk with this big uh, switch and then the other system would be warming up and then uh, get onto deck, grab the tiller, try and steady the situation, whatever it was, and then you'd look at the instruments, and they'd start to all perk up, and they'd go through their initialization, and then they'd be ready, and then you dive forward, press the button, and you'd be off again, and, and work out what's wrong with the the other system you've been using. So, double autopilot systems, and then um, you know every single safety system you can possibly imagine, basically. So, um, you know, if you've watched any of the Mariner videos, you'll have uh, heard me talking about the Echomax, which is a, a small unit which allows you to know if you are being scanned by another radar. And that might not seem that useful in some of the areas that some people sails. If you're in the the Baltic or if you're in um, the Keel Canal or if you're in the English Channel, like it, things can be going off all the time. But obviously in open ocean, um, once you're more than 50 miles away from a commercial ship, you're not going to be picking up on uh, X-band uh, radar um, projections so or, or signals, rather. So um, it's silent, and then when suddenly it does start pinging, it's not saying someone's right on top of you, but it's saying someone's about, and that's awesome. You know you're being scanned. You've got your own radar, of course, and you can then start to look around in the, in the gloom and the fog or the night or whatever it is that you're in that you need the radar. Um, what else? You've got chart plotters, of course, and then the chart plotters. Like on the boat I've got now, Falcon, the, the thing with that is I have a chart plotter, then I have a backup chart plotter, and then we have another chart plotter, which is actually round the back, like in the electronic space on the back where you can't see it, but it's there. And there is a switch on the other side where I can switch from like port chart plotter, starboard chart plotter, or backup chart plotter. So click, click, click gives you three different units um, with three different antennas. Uh, The log underwater on this boat I've got now, there's four different logs going through the bottom of the boat. It's so important for the autopilot system to be able to accurately read the boat's speed that you have to have um, four of them because if you're going uh, upwind, you're probably using the bow ones because the stern might be out of the water. Um, And you need to have the one which is in the water, not the one that's out the water. If you're reaching, then you're probably going to be using one of the ones at the back, but probably more the one that's on the windward side. So you've got uh, four different points so you can get the most accurate um, uh, reading. And obviously, you know, they're going to be in bubble streams. They're going to be in uh, ventilation as, as air is pulled under the hull, as the water foams under the hull. And you've got to have a really accurate so you can pick the spot on the hull that's got the most accurate reading for you um depth sounders of course um a couple of those again because you've got a boat that's so wide we're talking 19 foot 6 wide uh 5.9 meters you've got to make sure that the depth sounder which is on the downside of the hull is the one that's operating and then you get an accurate measurement of what's going on um, what else we got? We've got things like, uh, we've got non-electronic units on board, things like line throwers. Like I'm so surprised that other boats don't take this to sea. A line thrower is a most amazing piece of equipment. And if you are going to be traveling offshore, um, and you, you may have to take a tow from somebody, a line thrower is a very, very good idea. Basically it's like a big Nerf gun, like some kind of like uh, a spud gun type arrangement. It's got a big can on top of it and a kind of, Uh, handle and a trigger and then inside of it is a pyrotechnic which when you pull the trigger it fires a weighted um it looks like a kind of like an ice cream cone really like a rubber ice cream cone it fires that out of the end of the canister taking with it you know probably a 100 meters of line like 330 feet of line so people people think that in the event of a problem you're going to like uh take a toe or you're going to give a toe oftentimes trying to get the line onto the boat is the most difficult thing because it takes a lot of seamanship to position a boat uh in the correct place to transfer a line it takes a lot of seamanship to rig bridles and to attach towing lines onto a a boat that's being towed but if you can't even get the line transferred well then nothing's going to happen right it's not just a case of pass the line across in a storm you need to you need to get it across somehow and throwing it, all that kind of stuff, unless you can consistently throw a heaving line, a hundred meters, you know, a line thrower. Although they're pretty expensive, it's it's worth having. Um other things we have is a method of cutting the rig down, or cutting the rig away, rather, is better. Cut down whatever's left if you've already snapped the rig. For open sixties, their rigging is gonna be made of um, EC six carbon rigging or maybe EC three carbon rigging. We can get into that in the future, or PBO. All of those can basically be cut through with a knife, give or take, or something, something heavy, depending on if it's under tension or not. Um, if you uh, have any doubts about any boat's ability, uh, any any boat's ability to cut away its own rig, if you have an issue, of course, I think we've all worked this out. A uh, angle grinder, a a, a battery operated angle grinder with a zip disc on it, is awesome. But it's one caveat that I would add to that make sure it's charged. (laughs) I had a friend recently who was telling me they had to cut the rig away and um, the angle grinder was there, but it was not charged. And so just bear that in mind. For me personally, we have a bag on board uh, Challenger, which is the boat we're operating most uh, often with, um, with uh rod rigging on it and remember that the rod rigging that's on these boats it's we're getting away from open 60s now but as i said i'm the king of tangents so let's not worry too much but on uh boats that have rod rigging certainly bigger boats you're talking about nitronic 50 uh rigging and that is extremely hard you're not cutting through that like you're cutting through a mild steel bolt or something even with um the, uh, the blades in the hacksaw, which are intended for hardened steel, the HSS blades, you're not getting through it. So an angle grinder is, is the way to go. So, But make sure, make sure, make sure that, that battery's charged. So safety gear, let's just kind of put a, a pin in this for a second. But safety gear at a premium on these boats, um, the boats themselves very, very strong or no, so I say premium safety gear, not safety gears at a premium, but the premium safety gears on board and the premium setup and the standard operating procedures and every element of it is as safe as possible. So that's what the boats are. What are they about in terms of sailing them and performance? Well, we haven't talked too much about weight. My boats, uh, both of the boats I've taken uh, now, the open sixties, they're 9,000 kilos. So nine thousand kilos, and you're looking at something like maximum with the A1 and full main and the staysail up. You're talking about six thousand square feet of sail area um, for down downwind sail areas on open sixters. Sixties vary. Um, there's no doubt that um, you know some boats have more, some boats have less. But the the main boats that you'll get uh, out on the water these days, they're going to have uh, sail areas which are. You know, in the 300 square meter kind of area, Uh, upwind sail area, uh, about 240 to 330 square meters and then downwind, 460 to 620 square meters. So you're talking about a huge amount of sail area. The old rule for sailing was that 500 square feet was what one person could handle on their own. So when you've got the A1 up and you've got the full main and you've got 6,000 square feet, five to 6,000 square feet up there, you better know what you're doing um, in terms of loading i think i mentioned last time um, if you took a nine ton hull uh, with the kind of basic configuration that uh, an open 60 has and you just wanted it to go up at planing speed up at 16 17 knots you'd have to feed in 500 horsepower in the back of it two 250s on the back of it to, to make it fly so when you've got the, you know, the the code zero or whatever it is, is pulling from the top of the rig and it's pulling from its sheet and it's pulling from its tack and the, the main is pressing as hard as it can, it's halyard, at its tack, it's clue, it's all the different connections the sails have between the themselves and the boat through those mediums, through those conduits, 500 horsepower at least is is going, right? So <clears throat> you have to become very competent at, um, at dealing with high loads on everything. And that's, I think, where people's dreams start to diverge from the reality of operating these things like i can ride a horse sort of like <laughs> that is to say i've done some like holidays in which i've spent the afternoon on a horse uh you know i'm not gonna in any way say i've any skill at all as long as the horse knows where we're going we're good <clears throat> the problem is that i what would happen if i got onto a a championship horse on a on on a on a on a race winning horse yeah i could i'm sure if it was well behaved i could you know trot around on it find no problem at all but the kind of animals the kind of creations the kind of engineering which is capable of doing incredible things it tends not to be very well behaved at low speeds. you look at drag cars nascars uh speed boats uh open 60s rockets like all of these things are not to be piloted at slow speed and it's actually easier like the little bit of experience I've got with a horse I found that um they you can kind of realize after a while they're like designed to go at high speed as soon as you get onto the gallop with them everything goes super smooth and fluid and all of the pain and suffering of trotting and cantering is suddenly forgotten it's the same with open 60s. It's the same with race cars, which I've got a bit of experience with those. You know, once you're up to speed, and you're doing what it's meant to do. If you've got some kind of race car that's got like a super light flywheel and dry plate clutch and a straight cut gearbox and some high lift cam in it, the thing's going to idle like a pig and trying to get it out the pit lane is nigh on impossible. But once it's up to speed, it's a totally different machine. Same with the open 60s. Trying to Coke some speed out of them, trying to work with them in, in in slow mode. When you're particularly having to do lots of sail changes and do things that require interacting with the lines, and that ugh, nightmarish and very very dangerous if you don't know what you're doing. Um, if you uh, get it up to speed and it gets going and you've got it all balanced and set up, the things are just amazing to be on. You know, you're doing 20 knots; it's just flying along. The spray's flying. It's you know, it's the most happy place to be. The problem is if anything goes wrong and then that does come back to race cars and horses again and rockets if anything goes wrong you better have a whole basket of skills that you're going to be able to dig into and and help yourself otherwise you're in a world of pain if something starts coming off at the top of the mast and then the sails are half up and half down if the something gets around the keel if the autopilot goes off if the keel is in the wrong place and you crash tack, if you halfway through a sail change and the thing starts to flap and get out of control, like a zillion things that can happen, which you need to have already kind of be on top of. Otherwise, yeah, you're in a world of pain. same like I'm imagining a racehorse at speed going over jumps and stuff like that. You better know what's going on because if it gets a little unbalanced, you're gonna be right over its shoulder and it's gonna stand on you. Or at least that's my experience. <laughs> um, so the thing with these boats when they're going is that, yeah, you've got like winches. The, the lines that we would use, most boats would be using lines between 12 and 14 mil, and they would be uh, Dyneema. So for many of you, you'll obviously know what that's all about, but to give you a quick lowdown to those who don't and want to learn a bit about it, Dyneema was first developed um, for the South African diamond mining industry, and basically it came about from the fact that the mines were so, so deep that the cables that went over the, the pit head that went down to those metal cages that they put the miners down on and lift them back up on and bring the ore up from underground. The, the, the lines are starting to break because there's so much line in operation that it's starting to, these big steel horses are breaking under their own weight. So they had to start to work out like, man, how are we going to, how are we going to do with this? Otherwise we're going to have to change the whole nature of mining. You have to dig in from the side or something. I don't know what you do. So this, um, Or maybe I can look it up while I'm while I'm talking to you now, (laughs) because every time I do this talk for uh, uh, on the boat for safety and I start teaching about lines, I always say it's just some really complicated chemical uh, chemical name for for this material which was produced, which then uh, gives us this uh, this incredibly strong rope. So it's called it's it's acronym is H.M.P.E. Okay, so maybe I can find out as I'm talking to you what H.M.P.E. stands for. Oh, whatever. Of course, if you're trying to find something to, to, to tell somebody, you like got no chance if you uh, <laughs> if you're under some. Let's. I'll keep I'll keep clicking while I'm doing this and try and work out what it is. But HMPE, otherwise known under the brand name of Dyneema, uh, has five times the um, uh, strength for weight that steel does. Its strength modulus is five times that of of steel. So that means that you've got a piece of rope which has abilities which for most people it's a little bit unearthly once you start seeing this stuff in in in, in operation oh look it says here it's called ultra high molecular weight polythene oh that's an easy way of remembering it. ultra high molecular weight polyethylene oh polyethylene okay right u h m w p e Whew, you can see why they call it Dyneema. Okay, well, that stuff, is, <laughs> I'll just go back to calling it super complicated uh, chemical stuff. It was developed quite a long time ago and they realized, because this strength modulus, you could weave a rope from it and that rope could be much, much stronger uh, pound for pound than anything that had gone before. But it had to be made up in, in particular ways to get the best from it. And so what happened is you get a move from uh, the America's Cup and climbing and all sorts of different areas of human endeavor started to bring in Dyneema and these Dyneema-based lines. But all of the lines came in with this kern mantle construction, what we call double braid in sailing or kern mantle if you're in climbing. But it means that you've got a braided interior, and you've got a braided exterior. It's got two parts and the interior core is taking 90 percent of the of the strength or it gives 90 percent of strength. It's taking 90 percent of the load. And the exterior has the qualities which allow it to best perform its function. So um, for the boats that I'm working on, you'll have lines that have Kevlar in the uh, in the uh, sheath or PBO in the sheath or um technora in the sheath and these would be things that would give it a higher ability to resist uh, heat which obviously a lot of heat's generated when these lines are working on the winch it would give it uv protection it would give it resistance to any you know abrasive material sand or something that might get into it and that's a much bigger deal in climbing as you might imagine and then different colorations that you can pick lines out one from the other so um, the exterior sheath is just there to provide those good handling characteristics and protective characteristics and then the internal core is where all the strength is now when it's produced normally dyneema is like a fluffy white kind of um it looks kind of like fluffy cotton really um but what you can do is you can coat it and then the interior goes that uh that gray color that we'd see on a lot of these uh dyneema lines and that um Makes it a lot easier to splice. It means a lot easier to use the core for lashings, and it has been a, a revolution in uh, in 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 sailing to have these high strength lines on board. We need them because uh, the loads which are operating on these boats, we get back to you know what is it to sail an open sixty. The loads on these things are phenomenal. So for twelve millimeter, that's just under half inch. Well, for we, let's go with half inch because that that's thirteen mil. That's half inch. Uh, the braking strain is 8,800 kilos. Yeah, so 8,800 kilos is a holy load of. I'm gonna have to do a lot of tip tapping on my computer here to uh, to work out today what uh, all these different conversions are. It's, uh, oh, 88,000. So it's uh, uh, 19,400 pounds. <laughs> so this is a half inch rope that can carry nearly 20,000 in, pounds in weight. That's 8,800 kilos. So that's like uh, three pickups. Isn't that incredible? Like I find that phenomenal, this one half inch line. And obviously talking about trucks, it's being used uh, more and more now in winches on trucks because the thing with a steel cable is if it does break, you've got that massive recoil, which we also experienced on Boats when we used to have uh, rope to wire halyards and rope to wire sheets even um, if they did break man life you do not want to be stood uh, back downrange from that thing when it goes off because it will do a huge amount of damage on a winch where you've got ten thousand pounds in operation uh, almost at a minimum in most off road uh, uh, emergency situations um, the 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 capacity of Dyneema which makes it very very uh, um, good for this operation is the fact that when it breaks it just lies down it's the most weird thing to see because we have this concept of what material science is because of the way we were brought up we're not expecting a rope to carry stuff that's way more than steel we're expecting that a line that's under that kind of pressure breaks it recoils like you wouldn't believe now there is some recoil but it's it's it dissipates the energy so quickly, so fast through processes that I don't understand that basically you know the the risk, risk is massively reduced and they're starting to understand that a lot more now with big ship um, mooring lines and things when big ship mooring lines break the recoil is a, a massive risk for those who are on the dock the longshoremen and those who are operating you know on the folks who are on the stern of the ship that's docking but using more dyneema line now and using other um, uh, arresters uh, 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 built into the rope we now got an understanding that these these ship lines are getting safer and safer for those people using the same, uh, Dyneema based technology. So, um, the loads on these boats are incredible. The weight is very, very light. The sail area is incredible. Um, so for me getting on this boat and uh, I've been talking about this for a while now, I hope it's not too taxing for you, but for me to get on this boat and just get going, I think anybody who knows these kind of boats is going to say this is a very, uh, ignorant person. Um, For those who are on the other side of the equation that haven't done this kind of thing, they'll be going, oh, my God, like, I wish I could have that opportunity. The reality is, if you don't know about these boats and you suddenly get thrust out into the ocean on one, it's basically petrifying (laughs) and you're not competitive. Whatever you think is going through your head of like, oh, I could just ace this. I could do that, do the other, forget it. It's not going to happen. Not unless you basically, well, what I did and I, you know, the race around the world was long, obviously, down below Cape Town, down around below uh, New Zealand and and, uh, and under Cape Horn. It took me to New Zealand until I was anywhere near competitive in that boat. So, you know, don't think you're going to jump on one for the afternoon and get it wired. But if you do happen to have the opportunity to sail from Europe to New Zealand, I can tell you that by the time you get there, you'll probably be OK. So off down the Atlantic, I went in my uh, rocket, <laughs> basically, um, and... You know, I can't remember every single detail of every single day, but I can remember that the emotionally, uh, I think the, the the kind of decompression was coming from this crazy eight weeks that had been sent getting, spent getting this boat together. And I think at that point I was starting to understand the fallout from um, some of the decisions I'd made. Uh, I had already gone and done the clipper race, and I can remember going back and telling my parents very excitedly that I got the opportunity to be a clipper skipper, which I was hugely proud of, and um, that I was going to be taking this boat around the world. And uh, my mother told me later on, she looked at my dad. See, I did a lot of sailing, but remember, I had been in Hong Kong and Asia mostly. So they weren't really up to speed with exactly, you know, what kind of sailing I was doing. Um, When they heard I was going to captain a boat around the world, my mother later told me, I turned to your father and I said, does he know anything about this? Is he safe to do this? So they had their doubts. But obviously, by the time I got back, they realized, well, we must have some kind of idea. And then when I got the opportunity to go and do it solo later on, my mother told me she turned to my father and said, I don't think he should be going on this. <laughs> she said uh, if there was a list of 100 people that should go and do 100 different types of people that should go and do this kind of event, she'd plot me as number 99 or 100. Now, I'm a very sociable person. I I love all sorts of areas of uh, of life, uh, you know, going out to the bar, going shopping, hanging out in my garden, going hiking, going all sorts of things. I love doing it with all sorts of people. And now suddenly I'm going to be on a boat, which is, you know, a very, very isolated, very specific focused environment doing one particular thing with <laughs> no breaks available. Um, and I'm going to be doing it on my own. So she was very aware. Now, she was a, a doctor of educational psychology, so she knew a thing or two, but she's also my mother. So she had a pretty fair idea of the fact that, uh, yes, I may have chosen this, but um, that did not mean that I had chosen wisely. So she, of course, was absolutely correct. Now, other things that were going on in my life. I was in a relationship at that time. And obviously, you put a huge amount of strain on any relationship when you decide to go and be involved in some kind of extreme endeavor, which takes you away from that other person but also the preparation and the emotional loading and the the unfair the unfair weight that you put on the other person by going and doing these things cannot be underestimated and i think that's something that i really learned during all of this time is that you know people might support you to go and do stuff yeah yeah, you should try that that's awesome but the reality may not be a hundred percent known to that person and uh then when you go and do it, you know, attitudes start to change very quickly and realities start to show themselves. Um, but, you know, what can you do like <laughs> re- remove your support for something? No, what happens is it just becomes messy. Uh, so that was going on. Obviously, I'd gone already for like a year, been back for eight weeks and was going again. You can imagine uh, that was not exactly cooking on gas. But then the other thing, which is a lot more tangible, and a lot more kind of uh, hard hitting was the fact that my dad had contracted no contracted developed well he'd got cancer whatever you call that he had brain cancer he'd had it at that point for 2 years and he'd already been through a very very serious like 50-50 does he live does he die operation in the year before and i'd said to him like look i'm you know i won't go and do this and he said no 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 you got to go and do it this is this is something that you're going to get a lot from um and because of his illness actually my dad who was uh always definitely loved me very much and also was always very proud of me i absolutely know that but he wasn't awesome at communicating it before getting cancer i have to say that um in any given situation you must almost be aware of um you know what's the gray cloud and what's the silver lining and that's one thing that those last couple of years the communication between my father and i improved exponentially because he found a way to communicate what was really going on in his head and his heart. And that, uh, you know, that's what I needed. I just needed that opportunity to like be able to touch base with him in that way. And it meant an incredible amount to me. And uh, it was very, very hard to, to to go and do this thing and know that he was um, at home and very, very ill and that I was burning time away from him. But equally, um, you know, he was getting a kick out of it as well. And that's what he always told me. It's, uh, you know, it's, he was very proud of what I've done, and he was watching and listening to what was going on as much as he could, and, uh, but it's on your mind, you know, and that's the thing, I think, uh, you know, it's I'm recording this today, it's the, uh, the 17th of March, actually a day after my mother's uh, birthday had she still been alive, so they've been on my mind a lot in the last uh, couple of days, and mum um, and dad are both gone now. Um, but we are now all facing this thing with COVID-19, of course, the coronavirus, which is out there. And it it, it does make me think of uh, the people that are going to be on their own uh, during this time. We're all like, yeah, I'm going to self-isolate and social distancing and all this kind of stuff. It's like, whoa, 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 pump the brakes. Like social distancing? No, no, no. What we're talking about is physical distancing. Physical distancing means that, This virus cannot leap from one person to another and from community to community. Okay, awesome. Social distancing is when you separate yourself from other human beings, and that is not necessary now with the way that communications are. And having been on my own, uh, you know, doing this, I've been on my own in lots of expeditions and lots of situations. You know, I've, the um, Whitbread 60 that we have, I've sailed that 6,000 miles solo. So, you know, I've been on my own, but this thing of being super, Super on my own for 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 a very long period of you know uh, of time that's just rolling back to back to back with and, and going into each leg. You knowing okay, I'm going to be alone. 21 days here. I'm going to be alone for 40 days here. I'm going to be alone for. That is very hard, and I didn't really understand that because you have no concept of what's coming next if you've not done it before. Which sounds unbelievably obvious, but I remember famous uh, Vendee Globe sailor, I think, was it Loic Peron? I might be misquoting there. Is in one of the adverts for I think the 2008 Vendee Globe or the 2009, 2012 Vendee Globe. And he said that doing your first, um, doing your first uh, solo race around the world is like jumping out of an airplane. And it's only the second time that you do it that you know what's coming and then you're able to enjoy it and to, to you know, assimilate the, the experience. And I think that for me, Doing this thing, it was just literally, I've never jumped out of an airplane. I couldn't imagine what that would be like. Uh, having worked aloft a lot, the idea of letting go and jumping off something petrifies me. But um, the uh, that thing is just like you have no concept of what the experiences is going on around you. You have no idea what the ramifications are going to be or the consequences or the fallout or what you're doing, whether you're doing is right or wrong. or And emotionally, by the time I was past the Canaries and off down the Atlantic and what have you, I think the enormity of what I got involved in, the way it was going to impact my relationship, the way it was going to impact my father, my relationship, my parents, the further dislocation from my friends was really starting to become very, very apparent to me. And, uh, you know, again, for people that are going to be cut off, uh, isolated, self-isolated, whatever that is with COVID-19 you know, those demons, whatever they might be in your head, those misgivings about life, those dark imaginings, those those shadows which lurk in the back of any normal healthy mind, those shadows have a lot more stage time than they otherwise would have had. The distractions of everyday life and interactions go away and suddenly you're just left with, oh yeah, that thing that happened when I was 16 or that thing I said to that girl when I was 22 or that night I had out with the, you know, it's all starts to come back and because you're in my situation, very sleep deprived, um, physically shattered by the work that's going on. Um, it all starts to rear its head pretty badly. And, and to talk about that a little bit, you know, the sleep deprivation is the other thing you're on your own, you're intensely on your own in this boat. That's a a monster, um, which lies outside of your like understanding of what's going on at this point. Uh, the, the, the effect of sleep deprivation, we talked about what that looks like in the last one, like you're You know, you sleep 20 minutes, you get up, sleep 20 minutes and get up. But, you know, if you know anything about um, sleep, uh, obviously, you know about this thing of rapid eye movement, this deep section of sleep that um, that can make or break who you are as a person. I I have to say that until about a year ago, I had a view about not sleeping, that there was some prestige in in not sleeping that I could say even to my daughter, like, yeah, you know, sleep when you're dead. I used to say that a lot. Sleep when you're dead. Yeah, don't worry. I'll sleep, you know. I'll have another coffee. It's only one o'clock in the morning. I'll get through to another sunrise. And I still do like the feeling of pushing through uh, a night and coming out the other side. Tiredness is a, is a heavy overcoat that I'm very accustomed to wearing. And I, I do almost feel at home when I'm very, very tired. But I learned some very important things uh, recently about um, sleep, which have totally changed my opinion of what's going on i ended up uh, if you um don't know anything about uh, me that you won't know but i am a big fan of the joe rogan podcast and uh he is a comedian an mma commentator and uh he runs uh, a, a huge podcast which you can catch on youtube joe rogan the joe rogan experience it's called um He had a guy on called Matthew Walker, which (laughs) if you're a sailor, we could talk about Matthew Walker, right? Let me see if I can remember to come back around to now. Matthew Walker, if I don't forget, if I do forget, excuse me while I interrupt myself. Matthew Walker was the name of John Cabot's boat, the guy that went across from the UK to uh, discover Newfoundland from Bristol. And Matthew Walker was also, if I remember correctly, he was a rigger in the British Navy who created a knot called the Matthew Walker it's a knot which is actually done in three braid line and uh, three strand three you know uh, braided line no three strand line good lord I get myself so excited by this uh, remembrance of Matthew Walker I know what I'm talking about three strand line the story goes that uh, he was captured by the Chinese or something and uh, either the emperor or some guy was very interested in talking to him because the emperor was very interested in knots which is part of uh, you know, Asian culture and uh, they tie incredibly decorative knots. And there's a, a lot of kind of like uh, um, culture around knots in in, uh, in China. And uh, he wanted to talk to this rig and he, he posed him with this uh, conundrum that if Matthew Walker could tie a knot that he could not untie, then he would release him. And so goes the story that Matthew Walker set, Set to work, and he created the Matthew Walker knot, which is basically: you take the three strands of the line, you create an overhand uh, knot in one strand, and then you follow the other two strands in a particular layup, which is a bit tricky to explain in this format. But basically, when you pull it tight, you have this wonderfully shaped knot, which has these lovely three fluted sides on it. And then you then relay the rope, and you've got this wonderful decorative little thing in the rope. But what he did supposedly was he took some line he put his new knot uh, which we now know as the matthew walker knot and he put it in the middle and then he whipped either end and of course having done that he sealed the knot into the line and the emperor or whoever it was couldn't get it out and that was it matthew walker was free so hence becoming the very famous in rigging and everything else but anyway and aside, <laughs> but uh, this guy, Matthew Walker, that was on the Joe Rogan podcast, it's a uh, podcast 109-1109er. Um, he's called Matthew Walker as well, although I'm sure he's not a rigger, but he is a sleep expert. And I got to tell you, it's uh, it's a, uh, these ones from Joe Rogan are normally a couple of hours. Uh, it's well worth it. I learned so much and I learned this, being awake is basically mild brain damage, being awake puts so many chemicals around your brain and does, goes through so many processes that you must sleep afterwards. And here's his logic, and I think it stands up to any and all criticism. We all, I think, agree that uh, survival of the fittest is a real concept, that uh, those organisms which exhibit the most parsimonious and effective uh, methods of, uh, of uh, completing the cycle of life Uh, they survive. And if you're, you know, we talked before, if you're a caveman that doesn't wake up when the panther comes in your cave, well, then you're dead and your genes do not get passed on. So with that in mind, why would humans evolve to need eight hours of sleep? And when I heard that, I went, oh yeah, good point. And of course we've evolved sleep because it allows us to fix our brains and clear out all of the, the detritus, conscious, unconscious chemical and all the rest of it. And get the brain ready again for another day. The effects of um, not sleeping properly in the short term, and that's what I was mostly affected by, is uh, I didn't ever realize. I know they use um, not sleeping as a torture, right? So I thought, well, oh, that's you know, that's kind of understandable. It's pretty awful to be to be awake for a long periods of time. But I never really realized exactly why they used it. And what they do, of course, is that. Once you're very, very tired and you've been uh, prevented from sleeping when you should, um, you become unable emotionally to deal with things that are going on around you. You're unable to rationalise emotionally what's happening to you. So it'd be very easy then. You can imagine for someone who's been sleep deprived for you know a week, ten days, two weeks, whatever it is, as an interrogator, yeah, you can you can torture somebody like inflict pain on them but at the end of the day if if they won't give you the information they want in that way well it doesn't matter how much pain you put them through they're not going to tell you right and you can't read their mind we're not in sci-fi land so an effective way of doing it is that you can over a period of time you can introduce new information which makes it seem like it would be a good idea for them to give you the information because um you know maybe you can persuade them that the secrets they were keeping actually should be shared and you can do that with someone when they have been sleep deprived for a long time you're unable to emotionally rationalize what's going on so when you put yourself in a situation where you're not sleeping regularly you become to a greater or lesser degree unable to rationalize what's happening to you emotionally and obviously on a boat at sea super super deprived of sleep uh working my butt off uh you know 24 7 now with a situation where i'm on a boat that's out of control and really kind of beyond my abilities at that point my dad's very ill my relationship's falling apart i'm building the story but you can see where this is going i got to a point halfway down the southern atlantic where i won't put too much of a kind of i won't gild the lily here like i I think i lost the plot i think i literally had a uh, a nervous breakdown, a psychotic break, whatever you'd say. And for me, it was, it was getting increasingly and increasingly emotional over things that were going on and interactions I was having in the situation I was in and what led to the actual moment where it kind of happened. And again, I'm, you know, I'm being honest about this stuff because I think it's better to discuss this kind of stuff with sailing and offshore sailing and put it out there and spill the beans, so to speak. Um, and, 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 Then people who are out there, who are going through these things, realize it's coming, they know it's normal, they have something in place which allows them to get through it, and the other people then realize how bloody difficult it is to go and do this stuff and get through it. You know, This is stuff that you can get back from stuff like this and and have PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder. You can get back from doing these incredible, extreme feats of endurance, and whether you volunteered for it or not, just the same as someone volunteering for the army or not, once that experience has happened to you, you can have post-traumatic stress. You can push yourself to such a point through sleep deprivation and all these other elements I'm talking about that you have a, a break. Now, my break, I would say, psychotic break is, a, is, a, is a, I think, too strong a term, actually. I think having a psychotic break is something which lies within another area of psychology and psychiatry, which I know nothing about. Let's say I got to a point where I couldn't take any more and how that manifested itself was that, um, I was reading emails one day and somebody who'd been in the race, uh, organization for the Clipper race was very jovially writing to me and supporting me. Hey Chris, you know, um, oh, you wouldn't believe, but, um, today you are within 60 miles of the exact spot you were at a year ago. And that moment, that was it. I was like, this, what am I doing out here? Because I'd already gone around the world once and my dad was ill at that point and it was difficult on my relationship, everything else. And I can remember approaching Africa having set off from Brazil thinking, what on earth am I doing out here? I don't want to do this anymore, which I think is very normal as you get into a, a difficult task like this. But then to find myself like a year later on the same day, having gone around the world once, doing it again, it's like, what is wrong with me? And that was it. And then I basically put, Uh, my sleep bag over my head and I just cried my eyes out for as long, as long, as long as it took until whatever that was, was through me. And thank God you got autopilots on the rest of you. You And I I still went up and had a look and kept watch, but literally I'm in the middle of nowhere, like way away from the, the shipping lanes and everything. And I think very slow conditions at that time, which is probably what was also frustrating me and overly hot in the equator and blah, blah, blah. But whatever it was, that was the point for me where it was just like, I'm broken. I can't do this anymore. And uh, I, I I, am proud of the fact that I, uh, A, can talk about it now, that I went through it and came out the other side of it. And I'm very keen that anybody that's had that happen in their life, whether it's at sea, not at sea, whether you've got that amount of stress and strain inside you um, and it's building towards some of that, we need to talk about these things. Mental health is something which is just always... You know, just bubbling away in the background. We don't really talk about it, right? Those crazy folks. We don't want to discuss that. But actually, those crazy folks just normal people that went down off a particular path and uh, need a little bit of support. And um, I think if you're going and get involved in any major, in, in, uh, you know, kind of intrepid expedition away from folks, I think if you're going to do something sailing offshore, you need to be very aware of the emotional point you're at, particularly when you're dealing with sleep deprivation, when you're dealing with high stress. And again to bring it back to something that's right here right now emotional situation and mental health and people self-isolating in air quotes um, or being isolated by the fact that i know in the uk um, people over 70 i believe it is are being told not to go outdoors like jesus it's hard enough to you know to make friends keep friends and, and and feel supported and give support when you're over your 70s anyway a lot of people already lost loved ones lost family lost their community to then say to people, you can't go outside of your house. Like that, that means the good folks are going to be at risk from mental health issues. And people that don't, uh, adhere to the rules are going to be out on the streets, putting themselves at risk physically. So, you know, I, I say, I, I don't mind to talk about this stuff. I think, for me personally, having gone through it, I feel a lot happier in myself now as a person. I know where the edge is of my psychology. I know where the edge of who I am is. I've been there. I've looked over the edge. I've <laughs> cried my cried my heart out for a day, whatever it was. And then a bit like an airfix kit, you know, you have to start putting the pieces together. You, For me, it was a very, very uh, tangible situation. I was, you know, a couple of thousand miles from land (laughs) on this boat. Uh, You can, people think on boats, you can like, you know, press a button on a beacon and like a ship's going to come to you. There are real world uh, limitations on this stuff. Firstly, the fact that getting a ship to divert to your position for anything other than like a major medical incident, which a lot of shipping companies will, absorb that into you know what it is to be at sea. It's it's kind of a, a an unwritten uh, mariner's code that um, you will help those in need. But if you're gonna go and pick someone up because they're having a bad day, uh, that could cost you 90 or 100,000 US a day for that ship to divert because that's what it's gonna cost them when that product they're hauling doesn't arrive in time where it's meant to be. Um, and when you do get on, it's not like they're taking you home. They're taking you to where are they going, <laughs> which if you're on a ship that's going west across the South Atlantic, you're going to end up in Uruguay or back in Brazil or, you know, who knows. So you can't just be pressing a button. And someone comes for you. That's that's not what that stuff's for. You're way beyond helicopters. A plane could get out. But what are they going to do? Like drop you some Hallmark cards and some Hershey kisses like you've got to get to a point I think what you got to do is you got to cry yourself out. You got to reason things out. You've got to just let that process occur until you get to a point where you're able to start like rebuilding, which I started to do. And uh, I went back up on deck and i tell you exactly where I was in the voyage. You know, we've, we've skipped ahead a few bits here, but uh, when this bit happened, I was um, right at the bottom of the turn where you have to go around the silent St. Helena high. I mentioned that in the last one, there's this, high pressure system which means it's got no wind in it that sits to the east somewhat to the east of the south atlantic it's kind of at the latitude of uh, cape town and it sits there and if you try and cut across it unless you've got an engine um, there is no wind so you've got to come way down the west side of um, the south atlantic and then loop around the bottom of this thing and um, then start heading for cape town so I think I was just kind of on the edge of that. And maybe if I think now about how calm it was and how slow it was, probably I was right on the edge of the St. Helena high, if not slightly becalmed by it. Um, So I went up on deck after I'd, you know, got myself together, had, and I'm talking about hours and hours, like, you know, a day of just beside myself, didn't know what to do with myself. But there comes a point where you just, you know, maybe sleep it off or what have you. I'm very, very, very aware of my sugar intake and the way that it um, changes my emotions. I always say to people on the boat, humans run on water, oxygen and sugar. And obviously, clearly, that's not a (laughs) medical diagnosis or anything. But, you know, there's a lot of big effects you can have by upping and downing those things. If people's sugar are low they can be very, very irrational. They can be very argumentative and combative and they can be very difficult to interact with. If their sugar's super high, they can be super silly and over the top and inappropriate and all sorts of things that go with that. If the water's really, really low and they're dehydrated, well, you can have ataxia, dizziness, you can have, um, you know, that they're unable to reason things through, that their vision may be blurred, that they can be very dangerous to be working on deck with. And if you go the other way and the water's over the top, then you can become... Uh, hyponutremic hyper-nu- where actually you've kind of watered your blood down, which has the same uh, symptoms as being dehydrated, apart from the fact that you're peeing like a racehorse. And then, so you've oxygen. Oxygen is one of the ones which we, I think, deal with the, the most. Not that many people realize it, but a lot of nervousness of people going out on boats for the very first time causes people to start breathing really, really shallowly. And I see this a lot with people when. They're starting to get just a little bit seasick. And if you've been around people that are getting seasick, um, they just uh, they start yawning and they start going a bit white and a bit green. And you say, "You You're OK, oh, yeah, I'm fine. I'm fine. But the yawning is the key. The yawning tells you that they're not breathing properly. And as I always say, if, you know, if I gave you a drinking straw to breathe through and you're just huffing and puffing through that for half an hour, or an hour, you are going to feel ill by the end of it and that i think for many people that nervousness that pit of the stomach like tension of is this thing going to roll over is the mask going to come down is this guy going to start shouting at me are we going to crash into something that turns into you know overall kind of systemic feeling of because because you've been breathing so shallowly so oxygen water and sugar and i try and always be aware of that on myself particularly i think because i've had to self-regulate so much of being on my own but when the when i'm feeling super emotional you know, I will through bleary eyes or whatever it is, try and cram something in my mouth. that I know has got sugars that left me, lift me up. And I try and come back to the problem in half an hour and have a, see how I feel about it. And after an hour, having had a little bit of a meal or something, and it's surprising how out of, you know, nine out of 10 problems seem a hell of a lot better on a full stomach. So after I got through this very difficult emotional period, um, I can't remember the exact details, but I know what I'll have done because I know how I operate through this and I will have had something to eat. I'll have probably slept for a little while, started to write down my thoughts, rationalize out what's going on and then find a way to start stepping forward. And I, I write about this in the uh, in, in the book that I've started, which I think we're going to be starting to read that as a as a podcast as well. Um, but talking about the fact that, you know, you, you have to find a way to pick yourself up. You have to find a way to move forward. And it's completely okay to have... No plan, no no concept of what's going to happen. But you have to keep trying to create the environment in which a solution may present itself. Because if you're not trying to create that environment to to grow something new, nothing new is going to grow. And that's is it. Henry Ford that said, "The man who thinks he can, and the man who thinks he can't, is, is both." The man who thinks he can, the man who thinks he can't, are both normally correct, is that right? I think I'm paraphrasing a little bit there, but that concept of, like, if you think you can, you can, and if you think you can't, you can't. And uh, I think when you're at that very... and You know, we're talking about one particular incident here that I wanted to highlight and talk about you know completely out of control on a boat that's way beyond my abilities essentially locked in self-isolating on uh, the the good ship uh, COVID-19 or the good ship Spartan it was this time but dealing with these demons and and falling apart but then having a little trust that on the other side of it you can start to pick yourself up you can start to drag yourself out of it but let's be very short. this was not the only time that I was beside myself and fearful and pulling my hair out, being on this bloody boat and all the rest of it. And I think that's an unmentioned part of uh, this kind of offshore sailing, particularly offshore solo sailing. You know, I'm, I'm very aware, and I want to do with these podcasts, I want to talk about sailing in the English language in the way that I understand sailing is often discussed and, and referenced and kind of communicated about in French language. The French have been pursuing pursuits pursuing pursuits they have been pursuing um things to do with the sea and and kind of getting in touch with the sea and communicating with those who are on the sea and being communicated to by the likes of taboli and morticia and lombard and um and uh who else would be out there doing that a Cousteau, you know like below the ocean people getting excited about the sea and what the sea can mean to them at a personal level of uh, endurance and endeavor and Testing their tenacity and building friendships and building understanding of themselves and an appreciation for the environment. The way it's discussed and talked about in the French language makes it something that's full of passion and energy and life. And um, it, it, people have in France have a completely different attitude towards open uh, uh not open 60s particularly but offshore racing they just see it in a completely different light i think in north america i you know i live in canada now but in 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 england where i was before it's just some kind of like elite thing that some people do it's just this uh you know you've got millions of pounds or dollars whatever it is you get a boat you go offshore you race people and like in the in the french culture it's like it's about heart and passion and i love that in uh, magazines like voile voilier i don't speak very good french i really don't so anything i access through french language is through a, a child's level of french but even so through pictures and what i can read you see that the same weight is given in those publications to the endeavors of a young family crossing the channel for the first time um, as to someone's doing the Vendée globe they see all as being part of the same beautiful overall canvas so you know, for me, I want to talk about these aspects of sailing and the, the psychology of it and the downsides and the upsides and everything else. I hope to kind of open it up and to try and make it something that people are passionate about because there is so much to be learned and there is so much to be understood, not only about the mechanics of sailing and navigation and meteorology and all those things we've discussed that are periphery to sailing, but also the human development, which is possible from being on a boat at sea. Remember, my starts in sailing was when i was 18 and i went out working on a sail training tall ship in hong kong and i saw the most incredible development in people people that had been incarcerated before they came on board the boat were suddenly communicating and they want to you know show leadership skills and they want to develop a group around them and they show caring and consideration for people because the sea strips away the facade of whatever bullshit is your life and just gets down to who are you it strips you away f- and gets you closer to that 8 year old that's inside you that is kind of constantly trying to get out you know the 8 year old that wants oh look at that sun coming up oh look at that ladybird look at that whatever it is you know at sea everything else doesn't mean anything it's just how you interact with people how you deal with yourself how you are as a person the most simple things is what sailing can be about. Yes, there's competitiveness, but there's teams that win that are miserable, there are teams that win that are awful to each other, and there are teams that lose that are brilliant with each other and had the best time and everything in between. And that, I think, that is what keeps me excited about sailing. So talking about all this stuff now, obviously it's just basically like (laughs) a stream of consciousness, me rambling on, here we are an hour and 10 minutes or something, and here I go again. But the point is, yeah, I want to bring this stuff up and talk about it, and tie it to something like, look at this, this thing now—the coronavirus. There's a lot of people. I think, uh, look, judging from the uh, number of people that have watched these uh, podcasts so far, or, or sort of rather, listened to these podcasts, there's three people listening. So, <laughs> like Tom, Dick, and Harry are listening to this. Uh, maybe one of you uh, has the experience of self-isolating, and you know you don't want to have to be suffering from social distancing. You want to have, I think, the understanding that this is something that. Uh, Everybody has a problem with and even those people who may seem to be acing it like a solo offshore sailor, it's hard and there's many times you fall down and you just have to try and like an airfix kit work out, okay, I've fallen apart again. How do I put those bits back together again? How do I move forward? How do I create the correct environment to move forward? Is there something positive you can do right now? Change the room you sat in, change the book you're reading, have something to eat, have a cup of tea. Put that thought out of your mind for a little while, if you can, you know, something, some meditation tape, some loud rock music, whatever it is for you. That's the most fertile soil for you to be the best possible version of yourself. That's what I found. And as I went down the Atlantic uh, on this one, I remember after this all happened, I was very aware of the fact that um, uh, the boat had had some owners in the past. Actually, a, a person died on the boat. Um, uh Now, what was in uh, Andrea, Andrea Romelli, uh, Andrea. Oh, I hate that. I've forgotten the name. Andrea Romanelli. I I hope that's right. Um, I was I I know the story that that boat of mine that I did the Velux race on was called Fila. uh, And it tried to do a transatlantic uh, crossing record. And Andrea Romanelli uh, was killed when the boat was flipped over in a pitch pole instant. And I was always aware of the fact that, like, this thing had happened on the boat, although I'm sure that... um, you know, not, nothing kind of came. I'm not really someone that believes in spirits and things, but if you're low and you're tired and you're low on sugar and you're all sorts of things start to swarm around in the back of your head. And I was very aware that when Sir Robin had been on the boat, um, his wife, unfortunately, had, had passed away only a you know relatively short period before he'd gone. And it started to kind of like build on me the fact that there was this like darkness on the boat, the darkness that I had brought on board with my own thoughts and my own cogitations and these other things. So I know from having lived in Asia that uh, at uh, certain times of the year when you want to ward off evil spirits, fireworks, and particularly firecrackers, are a great way of doing that. The loud noises, so they say in their culture, ward off these, these evil spirits. Now, I say again, I have no superstitions. I don't believe in ghosts. I don't believe in any of that stuff. But I do, I do give credence to the fact that things can start to develop in your head that can start to... Cause negativity subconsciously or consciously, and having gone through a difficult time, I needed to create the correct environment to try and move myself forward positively. So, some kind of action there's not many other actions you can take when you're you can't go for a walk, you can't go and you know (laughs) ask to spend an hour with the neighbor's dog or something that's therapeutic, you can't go out and see your mates, you can't go for a drive in your car, you can't do anything apart from be on this bloody boat. every time the boat demands something of you, you've got to do what it says. Like you you're as much of a component as the rudder and the compass and the, and the rigging It's just, there's a human on board that moves stuff around. The wind calls, the race calls, the competition calls, the physical requirements of the boat. You've got to do whatever it is. So it's not like you can do something out of the ordinary to create a fertile environment for positivity. But I did think, Oh, you know what? Like, every bang that happens on the deck, every time you drop anything on the deck of a carbon fiber boat, every time a wave hits it, it sounds like the end of the world because the panels of the boat are so uh, they're so tense and and tight and taut. They're so sonorous that uh, it's like a, a boombox, right? So I got the radio. I put on, um, uh, well, whatever loud music there was. I, I actually uh, hadn't got very much uh, music with me on the first leg, which is a whole other discussion. Maybe we won't get into that, but basically we'd forgotten to put, <laughs> you talk about why things were dark. Like, uh, we had forgotten to put on board the boat. I say we, but it was probably me. Had forgotten to put on board the, the box, which had all of the CDs. That's how old this is. CDs and books and things that I was going to take with me for my entertainment. So on the first six and a half thousand mile leg down from uh, France to Cape Town, with all this stuff going on we've been discussing, I only had <laughs> The Heart of Darkness and Other Stories by Joseph Conrad. And uh, the very best of um, – oh, God, what's her name? Oh, no, that's – I was going to say Macy Gray. It's not Macy Gray. Uh, Nina Simone. Nina Simone. Now, I will say this. Incredible musician, incredible author in Joseph Conrad. Thank God it was high-quality stuff because it had been a, a, an edition of the Beano. And, um, you know – the latest from the Spice Girls. I think I would have thrown myself over the side. But there's a lot. You know, I I, I say I've got a degree in, in linguistics. linguistics. So language interests me and reading the Heart of Darkness and lots of other stories that were in the in the the compendium as well. The anthology um, was was very good, and I get a lot from it. But there's a lot of darkness in those stories. It's not like they're very upbeat. And then Nina Simone again, incredible you know, vocal range, incredible color to her music, incredible technicality to it. But again, she's not like she's like really making like very happy songs, you know. So I did have something else though. I had, I think it was Maneater by Nelly Furtado, which um, go and look that up on Spotify. But um, it was one song with a, a, uh, a, a beat to it and some, and some kind of uh, energy to it. And every night at uh, six o'clock, I think it was, I would put that on like as loud as the speakers would go. And I would jump about on the back of the boat dancing like a mad thing uh, for three or four rounds of that just to do something different and just to stamp my energy and my positivity on it. And um, it's like that thing of like, uh, you know, if you're really unhappy, then you should just make yourself laugh until you realize that you are laughing. And I think that was the thing is like act happy and fake it till you make it. That's what I was doing, I guess. So, that was my method of dragging myself out of the, the 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 low low place I was at. There was one other thing that helped me drag out of it, which is a funnier side, which is um, just off the coast of um, Africa, I think it was. Um, I saw the weirdest thing. I've never seen it since, but I saw this like uh, puff of something in the air. Which if the, I've seen it when I've gone past Australia, when there's been bushfires, and you see like smoke at sea, or you know if, if something is actually burning at sea, and I saw that like, this weird black puff of smoke that was ahead of me big like like towering high and uh, I thought you know what is that so um I I I sailed into it and what it was was an enormous swarm of insects all sorts of different ones little beetles little crickets uh, bigger grasshoppers like locusty type things and they were all over the boat they're everywhere and um obviously I was like the only thing that they could come down onto uh for I know hundreds of miles around and um after time, they all flew away or blew off or fell off or whatever it was. But that night, um, this, the wind started getting up and it started to have a lot of spray. And um, I could hear these crickets in the in the cockpit. And again, maybe being a little bit low emotionally, but also being a, a softie for all animals and all, all, all life, um, I went and ferreted out. And there's about four or five little black crickets that were in the, in the cockpit. So I'm like, oh, okay, so... It's like the only other alive thing that's anywhere within a thousand miles so what i did is i found some like plastic box that had some manuals in or something and i put some uh, some rope in there and i put a little cap from a water bottle with some water in it and i cracked up some crackers and i <laughs> i had this little terrarium tiny thing on board the boat so that was also quite uplifting in a way it's just this little cricket sound every morning and a couple of times during the night and what have you it was like something else alive on the boat with me but um it was by these methods by these small small things that i was able to hold it together enough that um i i you know was safe and uh the 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 the, the very very low point i had there where i was becalmed. what happened next was like basically <sighs> i guess the worst thing that could have happened but definitely cathartic and that was that um the wind came the wind came Big time, really big time. And I went from almost totally becalmed uh, at the very lowest point um, and, and kind of railing against the sky to send me wind to suddenly in a situation where there was 40, 45 knots. It was my first proper beating in that boat. And uh, and I was beating, I was going upwind as well. And, um, and it was just awful. And um, the way that Spartan was set up, there's this little bubble in the deck, which was the... Um, the, the cabin top, as I was sitting at the nav station, I'm kind of looking up through these two little windows above me, up the mast. And what became patently obvious or rather painfully obvious was that uh, the rig was did not have the correct tension in it. And as I looked up this, I can remember now, I see it in my mind's eye. It was flexing. I kept thinking, that must be the way that a golf club, a carbon fiber golf club flexes. like That's how much bend there was in it. This thing was all over the place. I was probably under... Like a staysail and you know deep reefed mainsail or something like that, but this thing was just all over the place and later on, when I got to Cape Town, we had a a rigger come on board who had experience of this triant rig with the deck spreaders that I explained in the last episode, and um, he said, "Whoa, whoa, whoa, this thing's not even at fifty percent tension, and indeed that was you know." At the, at the end of the day, the captain is always responsible for everything, and the project leader is always responsible for everything. So I was doubly responsible for whatever it was. But we did not have the correct knowledge on how to tension this thing up. And uh, I remember after all of these things I've been through emotionally, looking up at this rig, thinking, Jesus, you know, it's gonna, it's gonna, it's gonna blow itself down. It's gonna snap itself. So very, very worrying. Beating for a couple of days, just slamming and slamming. Like if you've got a you know, a Swan or a Beneteau or a Dufour or a Jeuneau or a CNC or whatever it is, it's got some kind of curve to the bilges forward of the keel. So as you come off a wave, it somewhat cleaves its way into the ocean. Because you want to get an open 60 to surf as fast and as well as you can, it's as flat as a pancake underneath. So even though you put it up at 27, 30 degrees incline to, to sail it upwind, it's still like murderous. It's not good, and I, I got to say, we'll be talking later on about the fact that I have this idea to take the Open 60 I've got now around the world and make a bid for the West around the world record, which has been, you know, set like a long time ago now, 16 years ago that record was set, and I'm wondering if there's a way of um, of, of 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 going for it with this boat that I've got, but. Every time I think about it, like if if the thing was, Chris, take the Open 60 and go and sell around the world again solo. That would have its own things for me to be concerned about, because, you know, all this emotional stuff, the physicality of it, the risk, all that. But this other thing of like going west around the world, it's like oh, God, I'm going to go beat for 120 days the wrong way around the world. It's like, hmm i'm up for a challenge and i've always wanted to do this challenge for like 20 years i want to do this challenge and now i've got the equipment it's right in front of me i'm like do i really want to do this like what what am i going to do to make it different so it's not like last time because beating up wind in an open 60 puts the word beating to its proper proper test its proper meaning it is horrible so i've heard some pretty graphic explanations of what uh uh, <laughs> of ways of describing what it's like to be in them. But it's, uh, I think, uh, I can't repeat any of them here, but it involves gorillas, washing machines and uh, amorous gorillas and washing machines. I think it's the best way to put it. But um, yeah, it's its not good. But for me, at the point I was at, it was almost like the final straw. So without putting too much uh, uh, build up on it, by the time I got to Cape Town on the first leg of this round the world race, I was done done like dinner I did not want to go any further with this thing at all I was I phoned my parents I told them I'm not going any further sit and my dad bless him said no problem at all we'll help you get uh, home and we'll take it from there I phoned everybody I knew and said you know this is not for me I've made a mistake I shouldn't have done it and um and that was it as I went into Cape Town I was of the opinion that this was it this was not going to go any further at all and uh i don't want to leave it like on a on a cliffhanger because it's an unnecessary cliffhanger let's just let's roll into what happened in cape town and and how we left and then we won't have some bizarre thing hanging in the air here of oh, what happened next um i as i got to cape town i got to say going into cape town if you've ever sailed down the way or we've just take a trip out into the bay there it is super impressive the table mountain is this massive you know from a long way off, looks like a massive monolith of a mountain. It's totally flat on top. And then you have this um, cloud which develops on top, which is, uh, uh, they call it a tablecloth because it's white on top. You've got this kind of condensating uh, uh, or precipitation, whatever it is, that's up on the top and then it rolls off the sides. And then you've got the city like nestled down below and the water's quite blue there because of the, the latitude and the sunshine and what was going on. And, you know, all of these things that had happened had been on what was a 35 day solo passage on this boat I'd broken things I'd been scared to death I'd fallen apart put myself back together again I'd been jumping about in the back of my boat I'd been dealing with this boat which was a monster way beyond at the beginning my skill set although I was kind of getting on top of it Um, I had along the way also I remember (laughs) just throw this in snapped a dagger board when I drove over something so that was buggered and the boat was bashed and smashed and (sighs) coming into Cape Town oh man it felt so good it felt so good like I could see it it was getting closer I'm talking to people on the VHF I think one of my crew from Clipper that just jumps to my mind now Becky Becky Block yeah she was in Cape Town doing her yacht master or something and she phoned me on the VHF and she's like hey Skip it's me I'm like oh my god that was so awesome so I I do remember that shout out to Becky if she's still out there and sailing um and I'm coming in, I've got all these feelings of like just massive, massive relief. I didn't feel any sadness at all for the fact that I made the decision not to continue because I was just over it. Like, I think sometimes like the, the mountain ahead of you is just too big to climb. And sometimes just going, I'm not going to do It's such a massive relief that in itself, it's cathartic. Sometimes giving up is cathartic, you know, just to be able to go, It's just like having a power sleep for 20 minutes in in the middle of a difficult day. You just just clock out for a little while and just let your body relax and just mentally kind of come to a different place, and then sometimes you've got the energy to get back into it. And I, I, you know, I'm i not one for, for giving up, but I know the power sometimes of just changing the psychology can change things right around. And um, as I came into Cape Town, I did have this glorious day of just getting closer and closer in the sunshine and then arriving and there's boats coming out and there's people, there was a band playing and there was people waving. I went in through the locks there into the, the area where we were parking by the Victorian Albert. And um, it was just this wonderful relief from all of this stuff that had been pushing me down and pressing me down and um clearly as i ended up sailing all the way around the world i did get back on the boat and um not to put too secret into it uh the the person i was in a relationship we had a sit down and a chat and we we kind of worked out what's going on here and that gave me a lot of fortitude to keep going and i spoke to my parents at length on skype and confirmed you know Where's Dad at and what does he want? And how's mum and all the rest of it? I communicate with friends, I communicate with and I just spread my issue around and said this is where I'm at and got a very good feedback from everybody saying this is not uncommon in the situation you're in and, you know, you've got this thing and that you're just burning you're just burning your time and your 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 efforts so hard out in the ocean at the moment. You know, this is now I'm going to my second lap of the planet in uh, inside of a year basically and you know we're on to the second lap inside of 12 months of setting off on the first lap um and that time spent in cape town was very very good for me it uh, allowed me to i took a little trip away and, and and got some time we had two weeks in port and when i got back from my trip and i got things kind of worked out and i understood where i was at i understood also the mechanics of the fact that if i attempted to leave cape town and take the boat back to europe which i'd need to do it would take me almost as long to go back up the atlantic uh, around the eastern side of the St Helena High and then up through the doldrums and then find my way to Europe. It would take me almost as long to do that as it would be to sail um, like three-quarters of the way to, to Cape Horn. It's like, it's going to take you another couple of months to get back to Europe. Um, you might want to consider going <laughs> going on, you know. So as, I, as it was, um, come start day, I was back on Spartan and we had tensioned the rig and we had fixed the... Oh, no, I sailed without the Daggerboard. The Daggerboard was being built. And we ha- I had had a lovely sit-down meal with Brad Van Loo and another one with Derek Hatfield. And I'd been to a party put on by uh, Gutek and his, uh, his crew and everything. And uh, we had all also, uh, you know, for those that listened to the last episode, Christoph Bullens, who was also in the race, he had been dismasted, and then the race organizer had helped him get another boat together. He had been a long way behind me, but indeed had been making his way down with a lot of issues with his boat. As he arrived, everyone jumped on board and helped him sort out rudders and masts and uh, sails and gear. And so it was a real feeling of camaraderie and and family. And Velux were behind all of that, uh, and their their uh, representatives on the ground um, just did the most incredible. Uh, job of uh, of making everybody feel that we were really included and everything was inclusive for everybody and that we were, you know, valued. And uh, that overall feeling made me feel that continuing with this very difficult, challenging thing that was ahead of me was a better choice than turning away from it. But that time at sea falling apart, uh, the decision to just give up on the whole of it, I think all of that put together with my own natural tendency to try and create something positive out of something negative was the only possible way of getting through that i think there are other people that would have fallen apart at sea and they might not have got back to the land i think there are people that would have said i'm not doing it again and would have walked away from it entirely um i think my makeup is such that uh i recognize enough now to know that when people are going through really hard times they're not just you know, when you're in a, crane, a plane crash, you do not come waltzing out of the debris in a tuxedo with a glass of champagne in your hand. You stumble out of the wreckage, you know, as best you can and consider yourself lucky. And when you've been through some incredible trial or you're about to go through a trial, you have to recognize that it may be a mess on the other side of it. But that is still a success and that is still surviving if, if that's what the situation is. Uh, calls for. So as it got back to start day uh for the, the the race going on uh into the southern ocean I'd had the great opportunity to talk to Brad Van Lu and to Derek Hatfield and find out a little bit more about what it would be to be in the southern ocean on this boat and I I do really appreciate I don't know if you'll ever hear this but um Brad Van Lu in particular was amazing for me. He was like um he was like Yoda to my Luke Skywalker, which is unfair to both of us. I think of the visual images that creates, but he would never tell me what to do. He would put uh, some ideas across my bow. He'd put some information in front of me. He'd tell me to go looking for stuff enough that I could... I could work out what was next and stay safe. And he did that because Giovanni Soldini, who was the guy that uh, built my boat, uh, Spartan, the Open 60 I was on, um, built it back in the day and raced it very, very competitive. He was in class A when Brad Van Loo did his first BOC around alone and Brad was in class B and Giovanni had been a mentor for Brad. So although we were in the same class effectively in the race I was doing with Brad, there was a massive difference between someone who's already won a solo solo yacht race around the world done two one one and uh and me like turning up on spec you know like my dad let me sit in the chair for the day so um he, he he gave me enough information so i'd be safe and that concerned the nature of what it is to sail in the southern ocean which uh we can go into into the next one the way that the weather systems work there and you know, there's a lot of um, information out there about what the Southern Ocean is. Um, you've heard about these towering waves and these uh, unbelievable conditions and the, the roaring 40s and the furious 50s and the screaming 60s. But um, I'd love to... Do what I've done here, hopefully, and, and give you an honest appraisal of it. And uh, for anybody that's interested, we're just at a point now with um, Spartan. Obviously, COVID-19 for us as a business is pretty disastrous, as you can imagine. We are in a business where we go to regattas, where they're trying to get as many people together as once. We're going to go onto a boat with people from all over the world, which is a great source of pride for us. And then keep them all in a very small space for like two weeks at a trot. Like, it's just a disaster. So... Um, I guess that's one of the reasons why we're doing more of these podcasts and videos now, which is great. I'm really excited to do that. But as we look forward, we're looking forward to 2023 and we're looking to the um, Ocean Globe Race, which is going to be an unbelievable event where we get uh, Challenger, our Whitbread 60, and we give her the opportunity to go around the world, which she never actually had the first time. She was involved in a uh, campaign where unfortunately, um, the person who was Uh, entrusted with the money stole the money which meant that uh, when it came to Cape Town the boat did a leg from the UK to Cape Town when it got to Cape Town there was no more money no time to get more and the race had to continue without the boat so she never did the race around the world and um, I would love to give her the opportunity to do that and then from my point of view I've done a crude Uh, uh, lap of the planet with the clipper race which I'm incredibly proud of and the crew that I had there I know what that can be but I would love to go back and do it in an even more competitive boat with a group of people that have got another level of focus another level of skill another level of determination and go on this wonderful historic uh, recreation You know, I, I guess a big underlying principle for this podcast is the fact that I worry and fear that offshore yacht racing which I believe has something to add to uh, I don't want to sound too grand here, like to humanity, but I think there's a lot of development. There's a lot of positivity can come out of it. A lot of learning, a lot of, you know, uh, awareness of the environment, awareness of each other, aware of at-risk groups, aware of our communication methods. And, you know, I worry that that is like kind of eating itself from the inside out because it's it's become in the last 20 years obsessed by like... How much did it cost and what position did you get? And, you know, what's the cutting edge technology that's in this? And like everything's so elite and so prima donna. It's so far away from what most people's experience of sailing is. It's almost unrecognizable from what I know as sailing. So the opportunity to get real people on a boat and go and do a recreation of the very best of what offshore racing was, you know, the early Whitbread races to me, that is amazing. And I, for those who are already, um, been communicating with me through the, the comments in the, the Facebook and the comments on YouTube, we're all going to get together. I'm actually going to start it tomorrow. The forum start discussing that. And that is a real world opportunity to get on a boat and go and see the Southern ocean. And for my part, I tell you right now, as always will be safety first and then respect for each other and the environment second and then speed next because you don't wanna be with a captain that doesn't have those things as a priority because take all of your childhood dreams of what this stuff is. When you're in the Southern Ocean and the waves are almost taller than the mast, you wanna be with someone who's keeping you safe first and then (laughs) worrying about the position in the race afterwards. But I think that we got the right boat there. I think that um, the Whitbread 60 is the closest in kin to the Imoka 60 probably even stronger in some ways. And, you know, Challenge has got new keel, new keel bolts. She's just had this new uh, ultrasound, which is rated at A1. We've got the mast ultrasound, like we're, it's looking good and it's a good direction to be focusing because if I think about what's about to happen in 2020 with COVID-19, it does not seem very positive. But um, let's talk in the next one about the Southern Ocean. Let's talk about what that is. And I'll give you a wholly honest appraisal of what it is to take a boat into that place where angels fear to tread all right well we're coming up to uh wow (laughs) it's over an hour and a half well it's okay it's less than the uh than the last one um i really enjoy doing these it's a stream of consciousness for me it's an opportunity to share what i know with people if you can start sending me some questions um I can do this one about the Velux race and my experiences as a kind of blog uh, alongside another one, if you like, where we answer questions and discuss technical aspects. That could be managing crew, it could be psychology, it could be preparing and vittling, uh, it could be cooking, it could be working on the boat in the boatyard. Whatever it is, if it's around sailing, I either know the answer. I can think up the answer or I know someone who can uh, help us both to understand it. So send any questions you've got or any suggestions for subjects uh, to CSM the Mariner. That's Charlie Sierra Mike. My name, Chris Stammer Major, CSM the Mariner at gmail.com. And uh, let's make this interactive a little bit. Whatever that idea is, bear in mind, I've spent 20. Oh, man, what is it now? 24 years. Oh, my God. <laughs> oh, no. 24 years Ugh, and over 320,000 miles now. Good Lord. Uh, still excited though to explain why the bunny must go up through the hole round the tree and back down the hole and no other combination uh, to make a bowline. I am very excited about this stuff. I'm very passionate about it and there's no... There's no question that's too silly because if you're thinking it and you've got the, the balls to write it and, and get it answered, there's somebody else somewhere going, oh, thank God. The one thing that I learned, I'll tell you now at the very end of all this, Be I, I did all this sailing around the world. I went back to Hong Kong and I ended up continuing to sail with people I'd sailed with before. And I had the confidence after all those miles and all that experience to finally ask the question, which is never asked on racing boats and maybe even some cruising boats. Um, why are you doing that? And it's the most childlike, it gets the roll of the eyes, it gets the snorts, it gets the hoof, well, you should. And I discovered that there's two sorts of people out there. There's people who really know what they're doing, yeah? Like my mate Fletch, who's bow for everybody everywhere and has been awesome for as long as I've been sailing, like uh, Jack Young that I sailed with. Um, they really know their stuff. And you can ask them, why are they doing that? Even on a very technical thing, and they will tell you why, and they'll show you why, and they'll prove why, and you go, aha, I have learned something. And then there's a whole other brand of people who you ask them, and they give you the whole like theater of why you're so incompetent to even ask the question. But when you boil down to it, they don't know either. They're just doing it oh, because it feels right. The boat likes it. Yeah, it looks better. Like, God, help me, if another person trims a mainsail and says to me, uh, it looks good, it's like, well, <laughs> how does the speedo look? Because that's all I care about. Um, so yeah, send those questions wherever they might be and let's dig down through it. Let's rip all of the Band-Aids off, what's wrong with sailing and uh, and get down to what it is. Let's share the knowledge, even if it's stuff like hard times at sea, even if it's stuff like... Uh, you know, somebody asked me the other day, like, do you hallucinate at sea? I was like, well, I don't, but I've heard plenty of stories of people that do like, send me your comments, send me your stories. And let's, uh, let's create a little place here where we can chat about sailing, offshore sailing, whatever it is, anything to do with, I don't know, tugs, super yachts, uh, tall ships, you name it. I'm, I'm excited about it. Even speed boats, bass boats. It's on the water. It comes under the remit of the Mariner, we're all mariners. Let's chat and let's uh let's keep the, the good times going, even though we're all locked in and can't maybe go sailing as much as we like this season uh with with this latest challenge. But uh, we'll all get through it and we'll be sailing safely as soon as we can, no doubt. So until the next episode, uh thanks very much for listening. My name's Chris Dower Major, the Mariner, and you're welcome to come back and join me next time and uh learn a little bit more about this incredible world of of offshore sailing. Cheers.